Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, as per usual. Michael, how have you been? I've been grand, Gary Grant, struggling along, you know. And how are you? Oh, good. We get to talk about one of my favourite topics today. What's that, Gary? Governments fucking up so badly that eventually people do something. Particularly the... Uh, the Dutch and Sri Lankan governments in these cases. Yeah, it's unfortunately not something we get to talk about often enough. Not because governments don't fuck up, because God love them, poor pets, they do all the time. It's that the people don't react. They don't get out there. The Dutch farmers are doing a lovely job of doing what farmers in France, historically, we've seen doing it in Germany at times. The Sri Lankans, no, you have to say, Gary, total respect to the people of Sri Lanka. This is what we need. We need more Sri Lankans in Ireland because my sad sense, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's possible that the Irish government could fuck us up over so much that we would actually eventually react? Well, I think the the difference you have here in the, in well, particularly the Dutch case, is that if you just kind of screw people, but slowly, they can acclimatise to it. And then it's just how things are, Michael. It's just the accepted way of doing things. But when you come out with a big, you know, bold direction change, that gives people the opportunity to look at it and go, you know what? I just really don't like that. So it's the, it's this, what, the, what, the boiling frog or the simmering frog theory? You don't put the boil the frog into boiling water, put it into cold water, and then gradually raise the temperature. That seems the way to do it. People will accept nearly anything is just you know how things are as long as it's a gradual transition. So we should probably go into exactly what we're talking about. Both the Dutch and Sri Lankan governments are having a uh, bit of trouble recently. Uh, the Dutch case is actually relatively simple. The Sri Lankan case is markedly more complex, but still has some of the common roots of the Dutch protests. And those are interesting roots, I think, Michael. So what's happening in uh, in the Dutch situation is this. The Dutch have come out saying that they are going to crack down on pollutants, one of which is uh, nitrogen. Yes. And they are going to crack down on this, Michael. They want a 50% reduction over the farming sector by 2030 in the production of these pollutants. That's nationwide. There are also parts of the country, if you are near a particular areas of natural interest, where the reductions are going to be between 75 and 95%. And what this means in effect is that when they say you're going to have to re- reduce your emissions, that mean you're going to have to cull your herd. And if it's a reduction of 75 to 90%, what they're saying is you just aren't going to be farming anymore. Farming and farmers use a lot of nitrogen. And it's just interesting to one of those little twists that turn. Once upon a time, one of the great laments of Irish farming was that the Dutch, when the nitrates directive was being direct, was being decided, which decide, basically was how much nitrogen or nitrate farming could use either I can't, was it per farm or it was per acre? I think it was per acre. The Dutch had sent in their Minister for Agriculture to negotiate, who apparently was a very highly trained uh, uh, agricultural scientist and agronomist, and they came up with a much higher nitrates allowance than we did, which was a source of con- constant recrimination with Irish farmers. Consequently, of course, because they they have a higher nitrates allowance, they have a higher nitrates usage, and therefore, when the when the cut comes, there's it well, there's the cuts are going to come deeper, and it's going to massively affect their capacity to farm at the level they're farming at now. On top of that, if you're obviously, like you say, if you're if you're farming either in beef or, or dairy, you have the problem of emissions, famously. Cattle burp and they burp methane. Although there are people working, Gary, you know, and doing like, serious science on how they can create uh, cattle feeds that will reduce methane permission. 
emissions in the in the burping of cows. The government came out with a couple of things that they would do, and they said that um, you, there might have to be mandatory livestock reductions, or farms might have to be uh, given funding to relocate to new areas. And the the big idea was was in the, if you're in the Netherlands, where are you going to relocate? But they've been relocating to the sea for quite a while. And I don't think that's a practical solution right now. But it was the it was the last point on the Dutch government's list of uh, potential options, Michael, that just led to things um, going a bit haywire and um, government buildings to be sprayed down in slurry and then all the fires, of course. It was the idea that um, if you couldn't meet these targets, then you could face the mandatory purchase of your farm. Yeah, I saw people reacting to that, saying, you know, that sounds like, oh, totalitarian government or communism and it's take and people who understand Dutch politics and understand the need for change, Gary. We're saying this is the typical hysterical reaction. The the proposals are very clear, Gary. They will this will only be done at the end of a process. This is not the first choice and will probably only happen in a relatively small number of cases. So that people are becoming just aerated and reacting hysterically over what is just a small detail in a much wider and bigger policy. There's just something about the government saying that they will seize your land if you don't abide by these other restrictions that may destroy your business anyway. That just, you know, just didn't seem to sit well with some people, Michael. Farmers... Yeah, yeah. Farmers are funny people, Gary. Farmers are odd. They're very conservative. A lot of these people, you never know, they might be even be might be going to church or something or be married to women. And, you know, they're they're they find it difficult to deal with change. I've also noticed, Michael, that that I seem I know a couple of farmers and they seem to have some sort of connection to their land. Almost like even if this wasn't a purely financial matter, threatening to take their land would be um received poorly. So anyway, since that point the farmers have just been spraying buildings with slurry, which is admittedly very funny to see. Uh setting bales of hail on fire of hay on fire all over the place. Uh trying to disrupt supplies to supermarkets of uh, food and other goods, which I can't imagine the Dutch government is enjoying. And then there have been videos coming out of, shall we say, Michael, a more boisterous nature because the Dutch police have been starting to crack down quite heavily. They have so far only fired on, I think, one uh, farmer, a teenager in a tractor who they claim was coming right at them. Of course, the teenager claims he was leaving the event. Not quite sure of the truth of that, but it's probably not a claim which is going to make the farmers simmer down. Also, there is one incident that we're aware of where there were shots fired, but there have been several incidents that have been caught on camera of police moving, shall we say, moving rapidly with intent towards the farmers with, with their uh, arms drawn. I, I don't know much about the Netherlands, but the impression I have, that this is it's a fairly strong rule of law liberalism. I mean, it, it is, it's the cliche, isn't it? of Western liberal democracies. It's a very, it's not a Dutch, it's not a Dutch picture, armed policemen bearing down on farmer and tractor. It's not part of the uh, the way that the Dutch like to see and think of themselves. Uh, it's, yeah, I, I think you're right, Gary, that the problem here is they just came out and said the, you know, they came and said the quiet bit out loud. They told the people what they were planning and what they were going to do, and they told them in total. They didn't say, oh, well, just a little bit. We'll just do a little bit. And then the following year, do a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit. They told them the whole thing. Now, they're saying, the Dutch, by the way, are saying that they needed to do this and that there were a variety of uh, 
legal constraints on what they could do and that there had been a series of court decisions where infrastructure and uh, building had been stopped because of potential emissions and that they had to do these things. Problem is the farmers don't believe them and claim that they're being targeted rather directly where other sectors, Michael, like aviation, are not. Well, I tell you, it's kind of comforting to know that it's not just in Ireland that politicians will turn around and say, oh, well, yeah, we didn't. That's uh, Brussels. It's European law. Uh, we could do nothing about it. I'd uh, love to help. Love not to have to do this. Uh, but there you go. What can you do? It is essentially the evolved version of bigger boys came along and made me do it. And that seems to be what the Dutch are saying about this. Is that Bigger boys came along and made them do it. And the farmers say, no, there were no bigger boys. You are the bigger boys and you're doing it to us. Do you have any sense? I was looking. You probably, if I couldn't see it, why would you? Then again, you maybe looked harder. Is there? I know there's been some polling done on this. Do the farmers have any sympathy within the within Holland or within the Netherlands? Or I, I wonder, is it too? Is it too? It's probably it's early early days. I I have not. Um, I haven't seen any polling from inside the Netherlands on this. I haven't seen really much news coverage at all. Uh, Gript have covered it. There was an explainer in the Irish Independent uh, about a week ago. And then the only other place I've seen covering it is the Irish Farmer Journal, or Farmer's Journal even. I find that genuinely weird because uh, maybe it's the nature of news values has changed. But once upon a time, big farmer revolutions, upturnings and churnings, that that was hot news. The French used to do this regularly. Now, maybe we had an interest in that because they used to tend to uh, hijack lorries from Britain, importing British lamb into France and burn them and have slogans against the roast beef and all that kind of stuff. But that kind of French lefty agricultural nonsense used to get lots of coverage. This has been just ignored and it's a big deal. I mean, this is a this is not a small scale protest. It's not like a couple of tractors here, a couple of people there. It's this is really impacting in the Netherlands. And if you were to go on to the my Dutch is not great, so I, I tend to use the English language version of these the these Dutch news sites. This is the new. This is everywhere, and we have quietly ignored it. I suppose we're probably just too interested in the uh, in the election of the next leader of the the Tory party in England, which has gripped people horribly. It is actually quite interesting the lack of coverage this is getting. Now, there's some like RTE who've signed up to covering climate now who you wouldn't expect to cover this because this is a protest and quite a large protest. I think the numbers estimated at the protest last week were 40,000, but it's a direct result of climate change policies or of climate policies. So I could see RTE not covering that because, you know, you sign up to a group whose entire thing is telling you not to report negative things about policies put in place to combat climate change. Well, it's not really surprising when you don't. You say that, Gary. I mean, sorry, hold on. If that were to be true, that would be absolutely scandalous. If RTE were making a choice not to report on the story in Holland because they had signed up to some agreement. I know we know they're the only, I think anyway, they're the only national broadcaster in your, that his site has signed up to this. But if they were choosing not to broadcast new, broadcast stories about a news story happening in the Netherlands because it, it percep- the perception was it might create problems for for climate change narrative or agenda, that would be absolutely scandalous, genuinely scandalous. Do you think you seriously think there's a chance that that might be part of why they're not reporting it? Well, I can't tell you, Michael, because when I tried to FOI. Uh 
RTE's interactions with covering climate now, they claim that all of them fell under, were, were classed as editorial or leading to, to the production of programs, which means that it's not covered by FOI. Now, if that's true, covering climate now is having an impact on what RTE covers. And Michael, I've got to admit, I've got to, you know, believe that RTE were telling me the truth there, as opposed to taking an easy out to ensure that I couldn't FOI any of their correspondences. So if they're telling the truth, then yes, covering climate now is absolutely impacting on their coverage. And if they're not telling the truth, then they lied about me in the Office of the Information Commissioner. And I've got to believe they wouldn't do that, Michael. They wouldn't take the easy out that there's absolutely no oversight of or way to prove they were lying about. No, no, I... I, I... I, I, I absolutely, I, I can't countenance whatever about not reporting. I can't countenance the notion that RT would lie to you. That, yeah, you particularly. I would say that is in the, the famous words of Lord Denning. That is a what is it? A hideous, a hideous prospect, hideous vista that we even countenance the idea that they might lie. No, but this is the. I think the Dutch have have reached one of the points that we've talked about. There is point where restrictions on energy start to interfere materially in quality of life. And that's not really surprising because everything runs on energy. You can't restrict it without doing this. And we've seen across Europe a total fucking inability to plan for that sort of transition. You saw, Michael, things like uh, the Germans are now shutting the rest of their nuclear power plants at the end of the year. There was some debate about it, but they've decided, no, they're absolutely going to shut them which means more either, Michael, cuts in energy uh, consumption amongst the public or more coal plants. More coal plants, Gary. They have been upfront and explicit about this. The Germans have vast amounts of lignite and brown coal, I mean, which is just about the worst thing you can burn. Uh, massive uh, open-cast mining. But this beggars believe. Now, you could say, well, nuclear power in the context is not going to solve anything in the short term because it's going to take X number of years to build it. But that you should take the strategic decision now in the midst of the lesson that you're being taught about energy security and you're being taught a very harsh lesson indeed by Vladimir. And that's the moment you say, no, 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 we're, 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 we're going, we're, we're going to go with the coal, Gary. We've looked at it and we think the future is coal. And I say the future is coal, Gary, because fairly clear right now, barren significant changes in the technology inshallah those changes will come the germans have spent over half trillion euro subsidizing renewable energy resources and it has not done it and cut the mustard neither the wind nor the air nor the sun nor the whatever have produced anything like what they were supposed to produce in supplementing or subsidizing their German energy production. So it's coal. They have looked into the future, Gary, and they've seen that the future is coal. There's movements across Europe in relation to energy where they're saying we're going to do these things for environmental reasons. And then there's never, never seems to be a follow on of, and therefore we are doing this to ensure that that transition happens correctly. And we don't, for instance, have to open, you know, a dozen fucking coal plants because we just didn't think this one true. There's a story actually in the Business Post today, and it's about um, firms preparing for gas rationing in winter in Ireland, and that um, there may be gas rationing coming in over winter, and that various businesses think they're going to have to shut down or reduce operations. But there's some interesting quotes in it. I'll link this below if people want to read it. Um, here's a direct quote for it. 
Sources in the Irish energy industry have told Business Post that almost nothing is being done to prepare for the potential energy shortages this year, and there is no sense of urgency at government level around the impending gas shortages across Europe. There's almost nothing happening on the ground, there's lots of talk, but I can see no mobilisation to prepare for what's coming down the tracks. It's not correct to say Ireland is unaffected by the gas shortages in Europe because we don't directly buy gas from Russia. We absolutely are going to be impacted by this. Then they talk about a uh, multi-billion euro EU plan called the Repower EU plan, which sought to provide direct supports to member states to build biomethane facilities, gas storage and liquid natural gas infrastructure. These supports included capital gain of up to 40% on such infrastructure. And the quote from the source is, Ireland didn't apply for any funding under the scheme. I've never seen such an opportunity missed in my entire career. It's a terrible shame. And then Pascal Dunhu told uh, told the Business Post that uh, economic modelling done by his department shows that gas rationing is one of the chief risks to the economy. Did we not have the government objecting to the construction of a large-scale liquid natural gas uh, facility being built? I mean, that doesn't sound right at all, Michael. Why would a government, in a period where it was incredibly clear that there were going to be issues around gas supply and pricing, do such a thing? Or why, I mean, even worse, Michael, the government could come out and say that it had no real issue with it, but the minister over energy could have directly lobbied for it not to happen in a personal capacity. And yet you're saying that the EU was actually offering grant money to actually develop infrastructure of that nature. And we were we were saying to the people who were already trying to do that, no, 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 you, fuck, you can fuck off. I, <laughs> this is where we are. There was a story in the BBC. This was considered, just to, to contextualise that, there was a story which on the BBC News, it was one of the first, second or third story of the BBC uh, news site the other, a couple of days ago, talking about how some little town in Poland might be the heart of the salvation of uh, Europe because it is building this massive, big, liquid uh, gas storage unit facility, which is going to and bring, which is bringing gas in from all over the gaff. Particularly, I mean, it's particularly important because the United States, as as we know, has more liquid gas than it knows what to do with. But it, well, more gas, which it's massively cheaper in the United States because obviously they pipe it, but then they liquefy it when they for export. But it's no use for us because we did, we we can't take it, we can't hold it. And rather than say, oh, that's that's a fundamental strategic lack in the way we're set up uh, as an economy to deal with potential energy shocks. No, we say, no, 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 we don't want that. We don't want that dirt here. No, don't you go building that. Oh, my God, these people, it's just... I was talking, I was talking to a, guy, a, a person who works in the in the fuel business a little while ago, and they would, they would have substantial coal business, part of their business. And they, they were advising me that if, if I'm in one of those houses that has fireplaces to be buying the odd bag of coal because they say that the predictions are that after September, prices in, of coal are going to be going 40, 45 and 50 euro a bag. On the on the government's policy on liquid natural gas, actually, I think it's worth mentioning a little bit more about it just to explain how to blame they're going to be. So when this uh, government came in, it was part of the program for government that they wouldn't deal with anywhere that use uh, that had acquired liquid natural gas from uh, shale, from fracking. Just not going to be there. And then they started saying things like, um, there is going to be an ongoing review of this area. And while this review is ongoing, we don't believe 
that it would be appropriate for any new liquid natural gas projects to begin or to be permitted. Also, we've never looked into it. The um, the process of actually transporting liquid natural gas is really cool. It's it's not easy to transport, uh, particularly like across large distances. Makes sense. I, I process of turning a gas into a liquid and getting that liquid into a boat seems challenging on the face of it. So we are probably going to see more and more of these things. It's already been floated in the Irish media a little bit that uh, the national herd is going to have to come down. Oh, yes. As well as interesting things in politics, when there's one side who keeps coming out and saying that we should push in a certain direction, but the other side is either too afraid or just unable to start putting out an alternative viewpoint, the side who are willing to come out and start saying things tend to be able to drag the conversation to them. So the conversation is going to increasingly become about culling the national herd and what's going to happen to farmers. And you're going to start hearing stuff about how, well, you know, most farmers, most small farmers are working other jobs. They're not really depending on the farms. So if those farms closed, it's not like you're threatening their livelihood, Michael. You know, give them a, a decent payment and then you shut them down and everything will become more efficient. And the Farmers Association are going to bicker amongst themselves like fucking children, which is what they do. And they're going to be totally unable to push out a counter message because they can't work with each other. And they have tried on rare occasions and it's gone spectacularly pearly. Also, Gary, let's be clear. They're not going to find that even if they have a message, who's going to, who's going to say it? I mean, you've said uh, RTE will have their own particular position on it as a climate issue and their own responsibilities because they've signed up to the agreement. The media, who cares? There is... The, the, the gap between the urban and the rural, the, the lack of understanding of the, the nature of me as a business, I I don't know, even if they had a story to tell, I don't know who's going to tell it for them. But there's tons of stuff that they could do in relation to media work, in relation to political work. They have solid political links, but they're allowing them to decay. And there's things they should be doing on the ground involving sort of getting... Look, there's just a, there's a ton of stuff that could be done. They're not going to do it. I've seen them try and do things and they failed. We have talked, Michael, to people in the farming community, in farming organizations, uh, about things that they could do to push back against this, to ensure the viability of their industry over the long term. And you talk to them and they sit down, they go, you know, those are all excellent ideas, yes. Um, but we don't really want to rock the boat on this. And you're like, okay, well then quietly die. If that's what you want. Yeah, yeah. And that, I've met some conservative people, as in, you know, don't want to upset the apple cart kind of conservative. But some of the people heading up these farmers' organizations are just, it's not conservative, it's just inertia. They've never done it, so they're not going to do it, because they don't want to do it. And if that leads to a failure, and everything goes down, well then they can't be blamed, because that's what we've always done. And it, I've talked to certain people involved in farming organizations who are not like that, who want to do stuff, who realize that, this is actually a debate that's going to happen. And if they don't get involved, they're going to lose. And I can only imagine the incredible level of frustration that those people must have to deal with consistently. Because you're talking to people who accept you're right about everything, but are just not going to agree to do something. It, it, that, I think when you say the pro, you know, we haven't done it before, therefore we can't do it now, that, that rings lots of bells with me that we're dealing on a couple of occasions. Also, there's a hankering back. There was what there was once upon a time. All you had to do 
was pick up the phone, talk to Mr. Farag, and if you were well connected and he was the right side, and he usually was the right side of you, you could get it done. The problem is now, the Minister for Agriculture, which used to be like one of the top two or three jobs in, in the cabinet, ain't no longer. But they still have this no, romantic notion that this is still this big job and that whoever's Minister for Agriculture is going to be a heavy hitter. I remember standing outside an election, uh, a count centre one time, and the one of the individuals there would have been considered to be, it was a big beast in his own party. And there were go, he, was, he was certainly going to be in the cabinet and there was a bunch of these Older men said, you know, geez, he might get Minister for Agriculture. And sort of half looked at me and I said, not at all. He'll want a proper job. He'll want Minister for the Environment or something like that. And they looked at me aghast. It was a kind of a heresy to suggest not only that Minister for Ag wasn't a big job, but the Minister for the Environment was. And it is much, much bigger job nowadays, Minister for the Environment. And not because of the environment necessarily, but because it also comes into local government and other stuff. Then, then Mr. Farag, they are stuck in a oh, and a kind of a nostalgia for a former politics and an unwillingness to recognise that politics is gone, and they have to go on and try and generate a new way of doing business. Yeah, I mean, I've run into that directly, where you're talking to people about things, and there's there is a sort of. But I can call the minister and I can have a chat with him. And, you know, it's it's very important we have our good relations there. We can't do anything to endanger it. And you have to sort of go, well, yes, that worked for you historically, but it's pretty clear it's not going to work in the future. So you've got, yeah, you've got some, you know, you'll have some great meetings with the minister. Maybe you'll go for lunch. And won't that be lovely? And in the end, he will fuck you because that is what's going to inevitably happen here. And you're going to let it happen because that's just what's going to happen. Yeah. Then again, Michael, any organization, any organism that isn't willing to fight for its own continued existence deserves to die. So, you know, if that's what the farmers want to do, that's what the farmers want to do. On the other hand, Gary, do you know where people are trying out a whole new way of doing things and a whole new way of politics? Sri Lanka. And maybe this is what the IFA, etc. is worried about, because things aren't going well. Well, I mean, Sri Lanka... Michael, for a very brief moment, became a world leader in both organic farming, which I believe we've talked about before, and uh, the application of modern uh, modern monetary theory. It did uh, organic for and central centralized planning of both of industry and agriculture, import controls, monetary controls. Oh, it was brilliant! It was a, it was fantastic. We all said it was going to be brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic until they started to run out of food and then money. Well, sorry, they didn't run out of money. They've got massive amounts of money. Uh, inflation hit 42%, which basically means if you have savings, uh, you don't anymore. There was a fairly substantial expansion in the money supply over quite a short period of time. Yeah, so we I should probably explain uh, modern monetary theory. Go ah, on, I, I, 10 quid if you can do it. Okay, so... I'm just going to give a synopsis of this, and if you're interested, look into it. So the basic idea is that there's nothing stopping a government from just printing unlimited amounts of money. That, I think, is the summary of MMT. The idea, just give it slightly more gloss, is that since the, since the state is the, the, is the author of the currency and also the collector of revenue. A state can't go bankrupt. And therefore, ultimately, the state can put, can print as much money, create as much money as it likes. I, I honestly, God, don't know how. I mean, people have been taking this seriously for a while. I don't know how. 
the history is just full of examples of states going bankrupt and being this bankruptcy having been directly preceded by these states debasing their currency. But there you go. I think what they're right about is that so there's a couple of central tenets of it. Uh, one is that you can print money because you can't default on debt uh, in your own currency, which is absolutely true. So when Ireland could could uh, print the punt, we could never default because we just print more of it. This, by the way, is why a lot of international agreements are in dollars. Which is one of the reasons why the price of petrol won't be going down shortly, lads. But anyway, go on. Basically, MMT argues that you know the state collects all this money through taxes and things like this, or, or they issue debt, or, or those sort of things. And actually, they don't need to do any of that. They can just print the money. And the counterweight to that has always been that rapid printing of money is going to cause inflation to skyrocket. Now, MMT argued that actually inflation is not really driven by the printing of money, but um, constraints upon the economy. Um, but it became very popular in a period where inflation just didn't seem to exist. And of course, that was going to continue forever uh, until they applied it in Sri Lanka. And then inflation skyrocketed and they destroyed most of their business. And the increased print devaluing of their currency meant that they couldn't really afford to import things, causing a massive balance of trade imbalance, which then meant that they were paying their debts in another currency, which meant they had to print more money which meant the inflation became worse, which meant they basically fucked themselves entirely. Uh, I think that's a that's a rough roundup of the, the economic view in Sri Lanka. Oh, they also cut taxes massively um, because you don't need taxes because you're, um, you're printing money. And the problem there is, is usually when people say things like, Michael, cut taxes and also figure out what to do with spending so that you're still not spending more than you take in unless you're taking out like loans to pay for capital projects, things that are going to make their money back or you know, increase trade or, or um, economic resources available to the country as a whole. Uh, they didn't do that because they cut taxes and then just printed the money because, you know, money isn't real. And so what does this matter? And then the tourism sector collapsed because of COVID. And then the switch to organic farming meant that their food production collapsed, causing massive food shortages. And then they had to import Fuel, which was denominated in other currencies, which they couldn't afford to do because they devalued their own currency by printing massive quantities of it. And um, this all happened in, I want to say, two years. It took them two years to fuck the country into the ground. Oh, hold on now, the organic thing, right? When he was elected, he said it was going to be a trans Over 10 years, the Emerald Island, which is Sri Lanka, is called the Emerald Island, because it's very really green, but also they, I think, actually have emeralds. They were going to transition over a period of 10 years to being this example for the world of how you could farm organically. But he actually did it a little bit more quickly than that. He took, he did it over a space of not much more than two years. And within six months, the production of rice had collapsed by like a quarter. And not just rice, uh, pretty well everything was going shit creek. And they had no fuel. So even if they had wanted to buy uh, artificial fertilizers and things, they couldn't. So when they decided, and they decided fairly quickly, that the organic thing wasn't working out, they couldn't actually go buy fertilizers, Gary, because why? They didn't have any foreign currency. Interestingly enough, one of Sri Lanka's primary uh, exports and one of the things, one of its primary sources of foreign currency was their tea crop. No, tea. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And the problem is, in 2019, they banned synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. And um, that didn't go well. That went exceptionally poorly. Because it turns out, Michael, fertilizers and pesticides are really important. Which is not really surprising to anyone who's looked at, let's say, the work of... uh, Oh, any of, you know, the 19th century people who said that the population was going to outpace the production of food and uh, everyone was going to starve to death. Oh, I love starve to death. Yeah. So the, uh, they, they partially reversed the, um, the fertilizer ban in 2021, but only on key crops uh, like tea. But yeah, they devastated their own, uh, their, their, their own source of foreign exchange, which then led back into the shit show the economy was becoming. We kind of, we joke about it, Michael, but this was a move heavily backed by environmental NGOs, the same NGOs who've lobbied consistently against things like golden rice. To be fair to the Sri Lankans, they were assured by very serious, credentialed people that organic farming would not impact on their production, that organic farming would be able to come, if not absolutely up to, but very close to the levels of production that you were, they would get from, shall we say, chemical-based or conventional farming they were that was part of the the narrative that led up to them. and that is part of the narrative generally the sri lankan government was informed by very as I said, very reasonable people that this was possible and it was workable and if they did this that there would organic farming would prove to be just as um just as productive as farming using what would now be considered you know traditional methods of fertilizers and pesticides and yeah that was that was total horseshit when they said it. It's total horseshit now. The end result of that is that there are hundreds of thousands of people in Sri Lanka who had um, you know, comfortable enough standards of living, Michael, who now live in poverty because inflation has destroyed people's savings. The inability to source food and fuel has destroyed people's ability to work, the ability of other industries to actually produce. And it's going to the wall. And it it's going to the wall through a series of things that they were told would go well, but which any serious person should have looked at and went, this isn't going to work. Sneery, jeery, sarcastic comments aside for a moment. Just reflect. Sri Lanka is it's a poor country. It's not a developed country. It's one of those, it's a country in the middle getting there. It has significant advantages, but it has disadvantages. And one of the social disadvantages for a long time, as we know it, there was a, a civil war in Sri Lanka, and that that doesn't tend to help your economic development. But what they've done, poor people who were struggling but were saving their money, putting their money by for whatever, maybe maybe to start a business or improve a, a small business, maybe to get a child a, a, a secondary school education, or maybe to get a child a third level education, maybe you know, to that to, that cycle of improvement that they. The, aspir- the aspirational people, and they've wiped these people. That's inflation. I think it was Keynes. Was it Keynes? If somebody's slightly unusual, said Keynes. Inflation is a hidden tax. It's it's a, that governments uh, impose on people who save. If you've never spent, if you've never saved anything, if you just consumed what you earn and you just buy, and then the government in a, a government comes along and creates massive inflation, you're you're right. And in fact. One of the problems with a, a society where, where people are just as habituated to assume that they're living with inflation is that you you, you encourage consumption and you actively discourage saving, uh, that kind of prudential approach. 
it's really damaging. But for a, a human person level, they have, in the space of a couple of years, really ripped the guts out of the savings of what some of these people will have been wealthy, Gary. I suspect the wealthy Sri Lankans mostly had their money outside of Sri Lanka and outside and nominated in foreign currencies. That's not not that's not usually available to put poorer people. Poor people that were just saving the little bit that they could, they've been just kicked in the balls, kicked in the stomach, and it's rotten and the no consequences. But I, normally, normally I would say no consequences. But there have been consequences. They're Sri Lankan people, even though they are, I think, majority Buddhist, therefore trained and inured to accept that suffering is in part of life. They have been rather un-Buddhist in their reaction to their government's magisterial incompetence, Gary. Mm. One of the, actually just as an aside, one of my favourite facts about Buddhism, because everyone I, I meet into Buddhism, nearly everyone, is from the West and tends to be involved in tech or something, you know, upper scale. And they're really big into meditation. Um, the majority of Buddhists do not meditate. Unless you're a monk, probably not going to happen. Which is one of the things that always really amused me. Get really into Buddhism and meditation. Like, yeah, that's not how that's actually done in the countries to which it is native. But anyway, that's just a general aside. Meditation is, that's the job of the monks. They, they do that. On this point, and it's worth mentioning this particularly, about synthetic fertilizers. There were legitimate predictions that in the 18th and 19th century that at the scale the human population was increasing famine was not just likely but inevitable there are you know malthusian projections things like that what was it i i, I make it this wrong population because the belief was that part population would increase geometrically but food production would only increase arithmetically that would inevitably lead to a massive oversupply of population undersupply of food and global famine and whatever about the merits of that argument, one of the things that we saw instead happen was the development of synthetic fertilizers. And so because of that, when you look at the early 19th century, you see uh, through this period, the human population basically double. But because of synthetic fertilizers, and to be fair, other applied technologies and advanced uh, farming techniques, mm-hmm. agriculture agricultural output tripled. But the usage of land didn't go up that much, less than half. And that's because it's much more energy intensive because of, of synthetic fertilizers. And so if you ban those things, what you will see is production collapse. Now, the link there between Sri Lanka and uh, the Dutch situation is that synthetic fertilizers are very heavy on ammonia and nitrogen. Yes. And so this is something that we're going to increasingly see because of environmental concerns. But yet, I have seen no government really come out with a plan for how they can ban the usage of these things or or limit their usage of these things in their countries without causing all sorts of problems. I mean, politically, the first thing you have is that there is a, a political and security dimension to food supply because a country that supplies food for itself is more secure than one that doesn't because one that doesn't can be in fact uh, can be impacted upon by external facts. And that doesn't when we say security concerns, that doesn't have to be a war. You can have something like COVID-19. Or where you have um, issues with transport through certain parts of the world, and the food supply is hit. You don't have that if you are if you produce most of your um, most of your food internally, or at least the staple food. So that's going to be hit. Then you're seeing countries say that well, we're going to import more food from third world countries or second world countries uh, like Brazil. Which on one hand, yes, you can get food more cheaply in Brazil because the production costs are much lower. But the environmental controls also tend to be, should we say, Michael? 
a little less uh, or a little more non-existent? All sorts of environmental controls certainly will be. Um, then you issues around animal health, where, uh, the use of things like angel dust or hormones or antibiotics. Quality of the meat. Quality of the meat. Now, by the way, the quality of Brazilian meat is very high indeed. And they generally don't actually have... I, to my knowledge, which is limited, don't have a big issue with the other stuff because they don't do intensive or feedlot farming because they just they're out on the pampas. They're 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 outdoor cows, and if they get sick, they drop and they just they don't really do a whole lot with them because they're talking about very 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 big things. In the United States, it's it's a very different situation. But you have yeah, there are going to be all sorts of issues, whether around the the. The, the drugs that might be used, the care of the cattle, the care of animals, and the chemicals that might be used in raising uh, crops, yeah, you, you, you're you not going to know. And then you have issues, perhaps, if you care about that kind of thing, about that you're buying food, which it's, it's not actually... For years, we used to talk about, you know, McDonald's was cutting down the, the, the rainforest in South America because for the hamburgers. I seem to remember reading a while ago that actually the biggest culprit now... And maybe this is just a good joke, but I don't think it was. It wasn't so much that, that we're losing rainforest for the cultivation of beef, but rather the cultivation of soybeans. Soybeans, very, very, very big business, of course, these days. Uh, so there may be other environmental concerns, not just the methodology that we're producing, but also the the, the effect on the local fo- flora. I, I suspect part of this, Michael, is less a concern to actually reduce emissions but when you look at things like the fact, let's say you're taken from Brazil, that then needs to be transported halfway across the world. And that's going to produce a massive amount of emissions that you wouldn't have on an indigenous service. What I, what I suspect is, is part of what's happening here is the environmental activists are going to push for it anyway, because that's what they do. Yeah, and also remember, the, fi- the environmental act- activists actually want much, much fewer people on the planet anyway. So yeah, if... If hundreds of millions of people die of starvation, as long as it's not local, they don't really care. I mean, a lot of a lot of groups are saying 500 million is our optimum number of the planet. I have enjoyed seeing the Green Party in power, because when they're talking about increases in energy price, and that was a primary objective of the Green Party when it was outside power, that these things should increase. And now that they're in government, you've got the other parties freaking out about it, and then it'll just go to Eamon Ryan going, I suppose that might be a bad thing, and we'll definitely look into fixing it, while the other parties just go mental. But on the I, what, what I suspect is happening in relation to certain pushes to move farming and certain types of production outside Ireland is not that it's more environmentally sustainable, but that it reduces Ireland's carbon output, because the output for the meat we import is going to be measured at source. So we can then say, well, we're doing fantastically on this metric, even though ultimately we've, it may actually increase the production or, or increase the, the total emissions because those aren't being tied to us. So I, I suspect there is a bit of, of gaming the metrics here and that that's how they're going to do it. Now, it would be, that would be a cynical move, Michael, particularly because you'd imagine the department would be aware, civil servants at least, that doing so might increase emissions when you look at actually the full cost of it rather than just the uh, initial production. Who 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 would do that? Who would look at the full? I mean, and full. And how how long is a piece? How long is a piece of string? Where are you going to stop? No, the sensible thing is to look only at here where we can look properly. 
I think that other countries have a responsibility for doing their own looking, and we should let them do the looking and leave it at that. And let's just get on with our lives, Gary, and not be asking silly, silly, unnecessary questions. On the issue of foreign currencies, you want to talk about oil, I believe. Well, very briefly, I want to just very, very briefly one thing. People have been talking. I suppose two very quick points. One, there's a there's been a conflation. I don't know if you've I'm sure you've noticed between cost, the increase in the price of things, and inflation. And you might say, well, uh, but isn't that what inflation is? Is things cost more? Well, yes and no. You're, you what we're seeing is big, uh, the increase in the price of things and of, of specific things in the economy are because of a whole a series of sort of local factors like we were always going to see a certain amount of inflation and had seen a certain amount of inflation in certain things because of covid because you had damped down production but also at the same time you had a slightly you had reduced consumption in some areas and that had created bot this had created bottlenecks in production of other things which meant that you had much lower levels of production and then when as the economies of the world opened up and we got back to normal levels of consumption but we couldn't get as quickly back up to normal levels of production and things that you're going to see uh the problem of certain things becoming scarcer in the face of greater demand and that would lead the price to increase but the thing about that is say take the price of oil right you say well that's inflation and that's all good going no what happens is that within an within an economy and i'm being very general here because i am a very general kind of person because i'm not an economist nor am not even a monetary economist i'm not i'm certainly not a monetary economist but say if you take uh oil the oil price of oil is based not just on the current demand but also the expectation of what the demand is going to be in the future right now as the wide expectation is that we are about uh, and also as prices increase one of the things that happens when things get dearer is people buy either stop buying something or they buy less of it. That's a really complicated idea to get behind, I know, but there you go. But the other thing is, we are there's a wide expectation that globally we're heading into a recession. And when recession hits, a couple of things hit. First, you've reduced consumption across the board and you've reduced production. Now, Gary, what does Gary always say is the fundamental driver behind uh, the economies of the Western world? I mean, I want to say energy, but I feel like I've said that about 10 times this podcast. Okay, energy. So, when an economy in the Western world, which is the single most important element of the Western economy, is abundant, uh, accessible, you could even say fungible and movable energy. So, when our economies go into recession and production decreases, consumption decreases, the other thing that happens is a decrease in the consumption of fuel. So, that with on the back of the widespread uh, expectation that we're all going to go into recession, and on the expectation, and on the just the result of the ex- the experience of the cost of oil, cost of petrol and diesel, has led to a reduction anyway. The price of oil has been falling. Uh, it's been falling for a couple of weeks. It's down from a high over one twenty dollars. Down, it dipped below a hundred dollars barrel. Now you'll have ups and downs around that. But the problem is, anybody who's looking for our gear to get cheaper because of that it's going to be very disappointed because do you know what else has been going down in value dairy uh the euro well the euro relative to the dollar relative to that now it, to be fair and we always try and be fair here everything pretty well is going down against the dollar sterling is down against the dollar the yen 
We should probably briefly explain why that is happening, by the way. Just very, very briefly. And there's many things that are driving it. But one thing one thing we should mention is the interest rate. So the, the US Federal Reserve has substantially increased its interest rate. I think it's 1.75%. But, 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 but three quarters, it, it, but there, was, there was an expectation that they it was going to be like a quarter of a point. The first increase, and it went it was actually a three quarters point. In this period of time, it's the biggest single increase since nineteen ninety four. And also, Gary, if I'm not wrong, the Americans were starting off a higher interest base anyway than in Europe. Uh, well, I mean, they started from like the the interest rate in America was like zero percent, but the ECB or the yeah the ECB was at what minus point five percent, which is something that people and many economists. Claimed it was impossible. How can you have a negative interest? Do you remember when negative interest rates from central banks were impossible? What a time to be alive. At the beginning of COVID, at the, sorry, this is just if you want a fun fact, at the beginning of COVID, there was one moment overnight in futures trading on oil when oil went down to minus $331. Literally, people were paying you store it i mean it was it had oil had negative value because nobody was using it there was no the economy with the projection of the cause of covid and the global and also there was a glut in the, and people were producing lots and lots of it and this was bef- when america was still doing its fracking thing and before biden became president and all that but it was it, it collapsed way, way under so it these markets are funny things, Gary. Things that you didn't know could be negative can be negative. Yeah. And you, Europe is still, by the way, we are the European Central Bank, even though we are now looking at inflation rates at seven, depending where you are, cost, price inflation, seven, eight, nine percent. We're looking at that. They're still buying bonds. They're still effectively engaged in quantitative easing. Yeah. And what's happening is that because the US is increasing its uh, interest rates, and they're expected, like there's, there's projections that they could be you know, 4 to 5% by the middle of next year. So you're talking substantial increases. That reduces the money supply. It, it reduces the amount of money that's going to be out there because it's more expensive to borrow. And so you would expect the price of the dollar to go up because there's less of it. And also, what it does is it increases, if you buy debt in American, American denominated debt, the rate, if you if if interest rates are negative, right, that means effectively, look, the Swiss did for quite some time. You have to you're paying to keep your money in that. This you have to pay Swiss banks to keep your money. They did rather than getting paid interest. It, as if it, as interest rates go up, the if you buy American bonds, that that the return on those bonds goes up. The uh, so when you buy American debt, then there is the return. So it becomes much more attractive as an investment vehicle. You buy American debt, you get whereas you you're basically pay. You know, it's the other way around here. You pay you you pay to hold European debt. So and as it becomes more and the and whatever about what's happened or happening in the world economy, the dollar is still the global reserve currency. When people get nervous, when they they don't know where to go. When they they don't know, like I don't know to what extent, but I think also in part, some small part, Gary, the catastrophic collapse in the in uh, what's the generic word for Bitcoin and Ethereum? Oh, cryptocurrency. Cri- cryptocurrency. Sorry, the collapse in the values of cryptocurrencies has reminded people. 
you know, it's not a bad idea to have your money in something safe. And historically, that has either been, for a long time, either dollars or gold. So the, the, the US is bringing up its interest rate because it has, uh, I think, an annual... I think it's, it's, uh, its inflation rate is about 8.5%, which is, after years of basically no inflation, insane. So they're basically increasing the interest rates to try and put a break on it, to try and bring inflation down. And Europe isn't doing that for, I think, two reasons. One is that the when you look at how quickly the EU is growing, the, the Eurozone economy, in the first quarter of this year, it grew by 0.3%. The US, uh, their, their economy grew by about 1.5%. So the US is, is, is performing five times better than the European economy. And the other problem is this. The EU has a common currency. But it doesn't have common financial policies, and it doesn't have common rates of growth. It doesn't have common, common fiscal policy either. No, no, it doesn't. And this is one of the actual innate flaws of the euro, that you have a common monetary policy, but not a common fiscal policy. And what that means is that in a situation like this, let's say Ireland economy is overheating, and normally we would just raise interest rates, and that would be the first thing we'd do to kind of bring yeah. Yeah. To a sense. But Germany's economy isn't really growing. Well, the Germans are going to lobby to ensure that interest rates don't go up because they want the supply of money. And it is a, an intrinsic flaw of, of the euro as a currency that this happens. Germans do not have to lobby. The Central European Central Bank will know because the European Central Bank sets rates fundamentally for the German economy because the German economy is a single especially now by the way and not to get distracted all of these people who are talking about brexit uh and so poisonous and talking about these horrible people what they should be worried about is the fact that the exit of the uk from europe has left us incredibly exposed to the power of the germans and now that the with the with the the with you take the UK out, which our economy tended to be more in sync with. The German, Dutch, Belgian, Luxembourg and French economies tend to be more or less running similar, similar-ish kind of ways. And if anybody was around when we had the last crash, we were getting interest rates set to, to deal with a German economy which was growing at like 1 and 1.5% when our economy was growing at 8 and 9%. And that went on for several years. It created a massive credit bubble which led to a massive asset bubble which led to the collapse of the economy. And now a lot of that credit bubble was fed, was fed with money from, Germ, from German banks who managed to get bailed out. But that's a sausage for another barbecue. The fact is, the disparities between the what was happening in the economy in Ireland and the economy journey led to the disaster here because it was the disparity of what should the what the interest rates were and what they would have been had we had a central bank. The absence of the UK is only going to make that scenario more likely. And there's another interesting point I think here is that normally when your currency weakens against another country it increases the potential for you to export to that country because your goods become cheaper in it. However, and this I think is the interesting point here and where this goes into policy, where we are seeing increase in the Eurozone and where we're seeing the primary risk, I would say, of, of a driver of recession 
is energy prices. Energy prices drive up the production costs of everything. So you can have a situation now where your currency weakens against the dollar, which means you should be able to export because your goods are cheaper. But the increases in production costs caused by the energy prices mean that actually, no, they become more expensive, which is an incredibly serious situation. Yeah, it's perverse and it's a horrible, it's a trap. Yeah, because then if if soaring energy costs push you into recession, well, then are you really going to put up interest rates and make borrowing more difficult when there's a recession and money is becoming problematic? And that's the real hard, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the hard political problem. And in fact, this is a question which is being asked in the United States, which where a lot of monetary, monetary economists are saying that they their concern is that they believe a recession will be necessary clear, uh, to clear the monetary, the, 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 the monetary problem and, and, well, and other issues around that have happened post-COVID. A recession may be necessary, but the, increasingly we wonder to what degree politicians are willing to accept. But that, to Reagan and Thatcher on the back of Freeman and the recognition that inflation is fundamentally a monetary, not a, another phenomenon. Had, shall we say, the intellectual conviction to stick with it and say, okay, we're going to have to have a recession. And everybody, and the response was, was and I suspect would be again, that this was just cold, horrible, nasty, cruel, callous, right-wingery, rather than recognizing that, you know what, we should never have been here in the first place, lads. And if you had done your jobs, we wouldn't be here. But sometimes you're going to have to go through some horrible medicine if you're very, very sick. Yes, it would have been much better not to have got this fucking sick in the first place. Yeah, and then you have to kill off the coal mines and you are forever vilified for it, despite the fact that those things were a total basket case and just weren't working. They were eventually going to collapse. If you had allowed... But that was the, and absolutely, there was, there was no reason for the North of England, the, the intrinsic reasons for the North of England, the Midlands to be poor. If there had been just the normal process by which they had transitioned from one industry to another, the North of England had been vastly wealthy back in the Victorian periods for very long periods of time on the back of manufacturing, which was built on the back of cheap, uh, access to cheap energy, which was coal. That should have been allowed to transition. That should have been allowed to happen in a normal in a normal and orderly way. And and as one closed, something else would open. There's no reason why that would happen. Why wouldn't that have happened? That's what happens in, in, in economies in, a, in when they're just allowed to develop. But no, that was at a moment when, it, on the back of Keynes and others, this notion of, no, the government had to intervene. Well, it's also difficult in a democracy because... If an industry closes, that region could be quite negatively hit. And there are people who lose their job who are never going to get another job because either they're too old or they can't change to whatever comes after. And it's always difficult, Michael, to tell, you know, is this something that's legitimately coming to its end or is this something that if we subsidize could grow again? And those are all difficult political uh, questions, even if you take the, the, the democratic part of it out. But once democracy is involved, you're hitting voters. And they're not going to like that. You're not. You're talking as if they are, as if these, one day an industry will close. No, that's not the way it happens. If you don't interfere, the industry doesn't close. A small part, 
the industry in some places gets smaller, in other places it doesn't, and then it gradually, it will gradually, it will die over a period of time. And it, so you don't get this massive st stochastic shock where you're, where everything is gone within the space of five or six years. Bang! It's all I, I think I think that depends on the sector, and I think it depends on the company. But in, in, in coal mining, in, in, if you're taking, in the particular case of coal mining, that's what would have happened. There were, there were pits that were profitable, there were pits that weren't profitable. There were pits that would have been able to maintain it, maintain it at a certain level, or there wouldn't. And you would have gone on. And and also, you would have given people, you would have also given people the, what is, as, has historically happened within economies, you've given people indicators, messages, saying, listen, this is not the job to get into. I know your grandfather, we thought that the codes would be forever. This is probably not going to be forever. So maybe let's look at doing some other stuff. The market will send you signals. The market wasn't allowed in this case. No, no. The signal that people were sent was the mines would be there forever. They would be open forever. And that was wrong and also morally wrong and cruel because eventually you run out of money. You run out of road. You can't do it anymore. This, um, this idea, by the way, that old businesses should die and that new businesses will grow from them and that there's a sort of cycle is a concept called creative destruction. It's one of the most important uh, concepts for capitalism. It's also why in America you see things like fire at will laws, things like that. Part of it is because of a, shall we say, enhanced belief that business owners is, owners control the direction of their company. But it's also a belief that if you can hire people very easily, sorry, if you can fire people very easily, you're more likely to hire them in the first place. And then it's more easy for people to get jobs. Now, the trade-off is you decrease the security of long-term employees. But I've, I've dealt with this personally, where you're trying to, you're looking to hire people. And you have to take into account, well, if they don't work out, there's all of these issues we have to deal with. And, you know, maybe if they don't work out within a probationary period, you can easily get rid of them. But then you're like, well, what if, you know, revenue goes down and we have to consider downsizing? What are the difficulties we run into? And it just, it can stop you bringing on people that you might if you could more easily get rid of them. And I've, I've had that experience myself. This is this is not a this is not an academic question. This is absolutely established in, in real life. When uh, Italy overtook the UK, I think it was the UK economy whenever back in the eighties, and the G five had to become the G seven. One of the questions that was slight, that economists became interested in was why, in comparison to other large developed economies, did Italy have so few global level brands, global level companies? I mean, you had Fiat, it had uh, Luxottica, it had maybe, I don't know, something in the white goods like Zanussi or Electra, whatever it was. There were very, very few in comparison. And Italy had a disproportionate amount of its economy based on what the, the Germans called the Mittelstand, you know, small, medium-sized companies. And survey after survey has been done, and Italian law ha is absolutely fucking Byzantine when it comes to labor law and how you can fire and who you can fire and who you can't fire and how fired they can they stay and are they really fired or are they in a spam so like a it's a bit like purgatory you're not fired but you're but you're not working and the, the obligations the employer has things like holidays can the amount of the, the canteen space literally i mean the kind of food that you might be serving. And if you can stay, for example, under 20 workers or under 50 workers and so on, 
you can avoid a lot of these responsibilities. And it's well known that within the Italian economy, companies that should have and could have grown strongly and become middle-sized international companies don't do it because the people that have who who run them look at them and say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm making a very nice living. I have my house here. I have a house in the on the lake. I have a villa in Sardinia. We have very nice cars and very nice holidays. What do I need? I don't need any more than this. I don't need to. I, I don't need that hassle. It's a very, very practical and well-established way of stymieing growth. Is by the introduction. The, now, after that, you can make your own decision as a civilization, as an economy, where you want to balance that. Do you want to have it absolutely? You know, cowboy Roy Rogers frontier style, everything goes, or do you want to have it Soviet style slash Italian style, French style? Probably we have a reasonable balance in Ireland, but we're moving. We're moving the other way. We're moving for too far the other way. There are lots of companies, lots of people who are, who are employed under contracts, and the con- and you and the contracts give them significant protections and will specifically outline those circumstances in which they can be dismissed so it's uh it's interesting that the employment laws can stop people being hired but provide security and yeah you can balance that tax i don't think we really talk enough about the potential uh, disincentives of tax systems like i know i've considered doing particular pieces of work and you look at how much you could charge and you're like fantastic and then you realize Okay, well, depending on how I do this, there may be business taxes involved. There's definitely going to be income tax involved. So even just income tax, whatever you're charging, reduce that by 52%. I know, Gary. And then you get on the phone to me and give out for 15 minutes about the fucking state of this Irish economy and that tax system. And it's no bloody incentive to work. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, rec- I recognize that. I'm not sure if it's really something you notice if you work for a steady paycheck because it's built in. But where you're doing more kind of project-based work and you're pitching stuff to people and you're getting prices back, there is a constant sort of, oh, that's a fantastic price, followed by the realisation of how much tax you're going to pay on it. And you usually have a sort of, yeah, it's probably still worthwhile, but now I'm like, I just don't have... Before, it was something absolutely I would do. Now it's something where I'm like, well, look, it's better to have the money than not have it. I actually... I, I. I, I know this has been talked about in comedy shows and stuff by writers. Uh, so it's not original, but I actually that I've once observed the famous moment where a young person goes from being a communist or a Marxist, a good Marxist, to being capitalist. To us. I was living in Italy at the time, and the, a young friend was uh, joining a bunch of us were out for dinner and they had just started work there out of college. They were came from a good sort of upper middle class intellectual Milanese family and he was, as all decent, respectable people would be, he was a good Marxist. And he had just got his first, uh, he actually got a weight, like a proper old, it was like an envelope with a thing. I don't know if there was actually money in it. I don't think there would have been money, maybe a check. Or, or it was an indication of that he had been deposited into his bank account, but it was his wage slip. And he was all excited because he was now finally going to be financially independent 
of his parents. Not that he wanted, he was going to be, he was going to live at home and take all the, what, whatever they gave them, but, you know, notionally. And he opened it up and he looked at it. He said, what's all this? What? But I was, I didn't. And he, he, he had been told that he, there was, his tax rate would be applied at whatever, you know. And he thought that was it. But then there was, like, uh, there was his, there was his pension, his imps for his pension and for the health levy or whatever, and all the other shit. And he looked at the bastards. Even bastards. And I thought to myself, we are watching that wonderful moment where the little, the little bird or the little, or maybe the pupae, whatever, that pupae, that moment where it goes from, from Marxist to capitalist. And they realize, the bastards. And forever after that week, he was going to go around looking at people who were getting pensions or whatever, thinking, you're robbing me, you bastard. It is a lovely moment. Eventually become one of those people who hears like the government is going to give an additional double payment to social welfare recipients this year. And you don't say anything, Michael, because you accept that some people need social welfare. But inside you do kind of make a sort of, hmm, hmm, <laughs> noise. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's the moment when you secretly become a Tory. <laughs> Deep in your dark Tory heart. Anyway, I think it's a, it's a, a lovely, lovely day out there, I believe. And I think we should release the people out into to perhaps to go to the beach and have a cornet. And we finally got around to talking about economics. And economic theory. It was bound to happen eventually. Monetarism and money and money monetary theory and us a little bit of well, the we need, we need we need we need to bring on Jer Casey to explain and, how inflation is theft. And you you even quoted Schumpeter with your uh, cre- creative destruction. Schumpeter wrote the best book on uh, Marxism ever produced. Schumpeter was a weird guy, but actually he the, was um, a very weird guy. But the older I, I I get, the more I think Schumpeter actually you know what got it almost all right. Anyway. We shall be back on Sunday. Mind yourselves in the intervening period. And yes, before I go, Michael is absolutely right. And if you want probably the most correct economic take on, well, economics, uh, yeah, that is that is who you want to read. He was pretty dead on. Hopefully not about how things will end. Yeah, I don't know. He, he, like he, he even called the emergence of the NGO class, like, which is very impressive considering when he wrote NGOs, didn't really exist. Didn't really exist, yeah. It's incredible. But he saw that one coming. Anyway, we will be back uh, next week. Hey, boy. All the best. <laughs>